Will any Marvel fans in the house uh, this morning, let me see you show of hands. If you're a Marvel fan, you like the Marvel movies. Okay, I see you, all right. Let me see your hands. If you've already seen the new Spider-Man, if you've seen the new Spider-Man, let me see your hands. Okay, some of us have, all right. Um, I, I was promised that the new Spider-Man would be the best movie I'd ever seen. That's what my son told me. Dad, it's gonna be the best movie you'll, you'll ever see. It's gonna be the best Marvel movie you're ever going to see. I saw it, it's not, all right, it's good, okay. Uh, my, the expectations for me were sky high, all right? I'm just gonna lower them for you that have not seen it, okay? So, so it's very good. It's a great, great, great movie, okay? Wasn't the best Marvel, definitely wasn't the best movie ever, not even the top five, okay? But, but it, was a great, it was a great movie, I, I, I enjoyed it. Well, if you know the Marvel movies, if you've seen the new Spider-Man, you know about a character named Doctor Strange. And what can Doctor Strange do? He can open portals, right? From one place to another, like from one dimension to another, from one place on the earth to another, from our earth, I guess, to other planets even too. So, so Dr. Strange can open portals from one place to another, and you can actually see through it to the other location. It's pretty wild. If you haven't seen any of the Marvel movies, it's pretty wild when, when he does this and he does it, no spoilers. Okay. But he does it in the Spider-Man movie. Okay. So I bet you didn't realize they stole that idea, all right? That, that's, that, Marvel didn't come up with that, okay? They didn't come up with it. They stole that idea, like any other good idea, from the Bible, all right? They stole that idea from the Bible, that Doctor Strange could open up a portal from one place to another. That actually comes from the Bible, and I wanna show it to you in Luke chapter three. Turn with me there in Luke chapter three. Now, there are plenty of reasons to follow Jesus to listen to Jesus, to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is God. There's a lot of great reasons. We do not have a blind faith. We have a very reasonable faith. There's a lot of great reasons to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, God in the flesh and the only way to the Father. But this week, here's what I want you to see. Luke is going to say, you should follow Jesus because God, in some sort of Dr. Strange kind of fashion, okay, it's the best like version or picture I can give you of this, opens up a portal from heaven to earth and verbally, audibly speaks and says, Jesus is his son and that you should listen to him. You should follow him. So we've got a lot of great reasons, but one of the greatest reasons is that God himself cracks heaven open and says, that's my son and you should listen to him and you should follow him. That's my son. And if you've been here for our Luke series, you know what that means. To say that Jesus was God's son, for Jesus to say that God the Father is my father, was saying, was confessing that he was of the same substance and value and worth and authority as his father. It was like saying the father and I are one, which Jesus would later say. You say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the Father and I are one. But saying that Jesus was the Son of God is the exact same thing as saying that the Father and I are one. What he's saying there is I'm the same value of him, I'm, I'm the same substance. Jesus said that about his Father. Today, you're going to see the Father saying that about the Son. That's my Son. He is of the same value and substance and worth as me. That's my Son. You should listen to him. So. Today, in Luke chapter three, you're going to see God verbally, audibly speak and say, that's my son and claim his son as his own. 
in a couple of weeks, we're going to have Christmas Eve services on the 24th, uh, 3 and 5 p.m. Would love for you and your family to join us. Next Sunday, the 26th, we won't be meeting because we're going to have Christmas Eve services. And then we'll be back on January 2nd, diving back into Luke. And we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus that day. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus is going to say today, that's my son. And then on January 2nd, you're going to see the supporting documents. You're going to see the family lineage of Jesus that's going to prove he's the son of man, like Daniel said he would be, the son of man and the son of God. He's fully man and fully God. And we're going to get his family line. We're going to get his genealogy, the supporting documents that prove that Jesus is who he said he was, that prove what everyone else was saying about Jesus, that he is the Messiah, that he is God's son. Years ago, my family and I went on vacation. We took our kids and um, we took our kids to Mexico, which means they needed passports. And so we had to go get them passports so that they could travel, right? And so to do that, we, we show up at this office at Texas Tech and, and we have to bring all these documents, okay? We couldn't just show up to that office or at the border and say, these are our kids, trust us. They're gonna be like, no, you're not, you're not leaving the country with those children. We don't care what you say, right? No, 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 they're our kids. Trust us, kids, right? You're our kids. Uh, you know, you, know, you don't wanna deal with that, right? You don't, wanna do, you don't wanna deal with what they're gonna say, right? You're, you're hoping they're gonna claim you, you know, but you never know. Those crazy kids are crazy, you know? So, so we had to give all birth certificates and social security cards and our birth certificates and social security. We had to give all of these documents at an office here in Lubbock at Tech to get passports for our children to prove that we are and they are who we say they are, right? So that they could travel with us, so they could enter another country and so they could return to this country with us. We couldn't just say they're our kids, we had to, we had to prove it. We needed the supporting documents. Today, you're gonna hear God the Father saying, that's my kid. In two weeks, when we pick back up in Luke, in the genealogy of Jesus, you're gonna get the supporting documents that say he's his kid. He's his, he is who he said he is. All right, Luke chapter three. We're gonna be in verse 21 through 23 this morning. And um, at this point, Jesus, from the time he's in the temple at 12 to this moment, he's now 30. He's been leading a private life, growing up, becoming a man, working with his dad in carpentry. So he's been living a private life, but today he's going to enter his public ministry. He's going to enter into, step into his public life with a bang. The crowds are going out. We saw this last week to John the Baptist to repent of their sin and to get baptized. And Jesus is going to join them. Verse 21, let's stand in honor of the word of God. Thank you. And let's read. One day, when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. And as he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. You can be seated. A lot's happening right here. There, there is so much happening here. And so we're just going to break it down and, and make sure we understand like the depth of what's happening here when Jesus gets baptized and, and after he gets baptized. So, so number one, when Jesus gets baptized, here's what's happening. Jesus identified with us. If you're following along in our app, this is where you fill in the blank with these words in all caps. 
and follow along in our app. Just click uh, the City Church Lubbock in your app store, download that, and, and then go to message notes in our app and the verses and the points are, are all there. But number one, when Jesus was baptized, he identified with us. He identifies with man. Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. The Jordan River, it means river of judgment. It's what Jordan means. It's where it comes from. River of judgment. Well, the river of judgment, the Jordan flows down into the Dead Sea where nothing lives and nothing survives. So the river of judgment that flows into the Dead Sea where nothing lives, where nothing survives. And that's where Jesus gets baptized. He goes up under the water, or he goes down under the water and he comes up out of the water. This is where he gets baptized in the river of judgment that flows into a sea of death where nothing survives. You see in the baptism of Jesus, Jesus is identifying with even foreshadowing his dying on the cross, his paying the penalty of your sin in my sin. Hebrews two says it like this, that the son became flesh and blood. So he is, he's identifying with us in that he becomes, God takes on flesh. John one says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He identifies with us by taking on flesh and blood. Then it says he lived a sinless life. And then Hebrews two says this, then he tasted death for everyone. He tasted death for everyone. He, he dies in our place. There's a penalty for sin. Genesis three, God said, the curse of sin is death. God warned Adam and Eve, if you take the fruit from that tree, you will surely die. There's a curse for sin. There's judgment for sin. There's a penalty for sin. You break man's law, you pay man's fine. You break God's law, you pay God's fine. And God said, the fine for sin is death. It's a spiritual death. It's eternity separated from him in hell. God warned Adam and Eve. The serpent said, no, you're not gonna die. God's just trying to keep you from having fun. He's just trying to take all the pleasure and fun out of life. You're not gonna die. They believe the serpent. They don't believe God. Genesis three, because of their sin, God says, you will surely die. You're going to die. It's the curse of sin. The scripture says, it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. It's the curse of sin that's on every single one of us because every last one of us were born into sin, the scripture says. And because we were born into sin with an attitude bent on sin, with desire for sin, we sin. The scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, we've all sinned because we have a desire that we're born into. We, we have this sin nature where we desire to sin. And so Hebrews two says that he took on flesh and blood and he tasted death. He took the curse of sin upon himself when he died on that cross. Galatians three says this, when he was hung on the cross, he took the curse of sin. Second Corinthians five says it like this. He became sin. That, that's you and me. We're sinners. We deserve to die for our sin. But in the baptism of Jesus, Jesus is pointing to and foreshadowing that he is going to taste death. As he goes underneath that water, that's what it means when you, when you get baptized. You go under the water, it represents a death. 
When Jesus got baptized, he went under that water. It represented, it foreshadowed that he is going to die. He's going to taste death. He's going to become sin in our place. We're sinners. He's going to take that on himself. We deserve to die for our sin. He's going to take that on himself. He became sin. He took the curse of sin. And so in his baptism, in the river of judgment that flows into a sea of death, Jesus goes under that water foreshadowing that he is going to take the judgment of God that you and I deserve. He's going to take it upon himself. He's going to be our wrath bearer. There's an old word called the propitiation. He was called the propitiation of our sin, which means he's our wrath bearer. He, he stands between us and God and takes the wrath of God for your sin and my sin so that you and I won't have to experience it. You see, God loves you, but God is also infinitely and eternally holy and righteous and just which means he cannot look on sin. He cannot be in the presence of sin. It means he must judge sin because he is holy and righteous and just. He will judge sin. He will pour out his wrath on sin. And in his baptism, Jesus is foreshadowing. He's saying, I'm going to take that. I'm going, as he goes under the water, I'm going to die in your place. So Jesus identified with us, with our humanity with our flesh and with our sin and with the penalty of our sin. Secondly, in his baptism, Jesus verified the law. Jesus verified the law. In Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus, he comes to be baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist is like, bro, <coughs> I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, you're going to baptize me, he says, for this reason, so that we can fulfill, so that to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, to complete, to fulfill the law. You see, everything that the law required was accomplished and fulfilled in Jesus. And so Jesus says, we must do this. I must do this to attain a righteous standing before God, to, to, to earn a righteousness before God. I must fulfill and complete the law. Here's why. Because if Jesus had just come down from heaven, been crucified and raised three days later, there would have been no righteousness, there would have been no righteous life to impute to believers in Jesus. Now, impute, that's another old word. What impute means is to give you something that you don't deserve. It's to declare you something that you didn't earn, that you didn't work for, okay? Uh, college students should get this, right? We, we understand this. If you've ever been in college, right? You, you didn't earn the money or work for the money that your parents are depositing into your account, right? They're wiring it into your account. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it, right? You did nothing for it, but they're giving it to you. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. They're imputing it to you. You have, you're a poor college student. They're declaring you a not poor college student by giving you the money that you did not work for. That's what it means to impute. 
but to impute something, to give it to you, to get, for Jesus to give you his righteous life. He has to have a righteous life to give you. He has to have a righteous standing before God to give to you. And so it was based on this, the righteousness of Jesus, that Paul said this in Philippians chapter three. He said, I don't have a righteousness of my own that's derived from the law by being a good person. I don't have a righteousness of my own, a good standing before God. God's not pleased with me because of my sin. So I don't have this righteous standing before God. I haven't been a good enough person to be right with God. None of us have. And so Paul says in Philippians three, I don't have a righteousness of my own derived from the law, from being a good person, but that which is through faith. I have a righteousness, it's not of my own. The righteousness I have is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, Philippians 3, 9. I don't have a righteousness of my own. I've given my life to Jesus. And so the righteousness that I have has been given to me, has been declared to me, has been imputed to me because of my faith in Jesus. And so because Christ fulfilled every righteous requirement of the law. He fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus said that there wasn't one letter of the law that wouldn't be fulfilled. He fulfilled every last part of it. And so it, God speaks of his son and says, I'm pleased with him. This is my son. He brings me great joy. Other translations say, with him, I am well pleased. I'm pleased with him because he has met all the righteous requirements of the law. If he hadn't, then the father could not be pleased with him. If Jesus were not sinless, if he didn't have righteous, if he wasn't righteous, he wouldn't have had God's approval. Habakkuk 1 verse 13 says this, that God's eyes are too impure to approve of evil. He cannot look on wickedness with favor. He can't because he is holy and righteous and just. He cannot look on wickedness with favor. He cannot be pleased by it. So for him to be pleased with his son meant that his son had to be completely and totally sinless and have met every righteous requirement of the law. And so the only way God's ever going to be pleased with you is if you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Because you will never, you, you already, you've broken God's law already. You're going to break it over and over and over again between now and the time you die. You can never meet the righteous requirements of the law. In fact, Galatians says, then why was the law given? It was given to show us our sin. It was given to show us how fall, how, how short we fall of the standard of God. It was given so that we might see how, see how sinful we really are, Paul said. That's why it was given. You could never meet the righteous requirements of the law, which means God would never be pleased with you, which means you would experience the penalty for your sin forever in hell. 
that God loves you so much that he sent Jesus, as we said, to die in your place for your sin. He lived a spotless, sinless, holy, righteous life. And so the rest of 2 Corinthians 5, I, read, I said it to you earlier, he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin. The rest of that verse says, so that we in, who were in Christ might become the righteousness of God. You see, when you give your life to Jesus, Jesus takes your sin and you receive his righteous life. So that when God looks at you now, he no longer sees your sin because the scripture says you're hidden in Christ and Christ is in you. And so when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's why the scripture can say about followers of Jesus, they are perfect and holy and without blemish and spotless and clean. Not because anything I've ever done, Paul said, not because I've attained a righteous standing of my own, no, but because by faith in Christ, God has given that to me as a gift by grace. I didn't work for it. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. But God, like it was said of Abraham, has declared me righteous by my faith in Jesus. And so when you give your life to Jesus, your sin's forgiven because Jesus paid your fine and God gives you the righteousness of Christ that Jesus earned, that Jesus attained. And so if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, then the heavenly father right now, listen to me, is pleased with you. Not because of what you've done, He's pleased with you because he sees the righteousness of Christ. At our church, we have what's called the City Seven. The City Seven are seven foundational truths that remind us of what we believe, the majors of the Christian, doct of Christian doctrine and, and why we believe those things. And we go over one of those seven truths every week uh, in every environment, in here, in kids, in youth, uh, in our daily devotionals, in our groups, in our table talk for parents that's on our app. We, we cover that one truth and we go over these uh, seven, uh, one at a time, and we, we repeat them. And so this week is city seven, number four, truth number four. Can a person be good enough to go to heaven? Could, could you be good? Could your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds so that you could be good enough to go to heaven? Could you do better and try harder from this day forward to please God? Could, could you do that? Do good people go to heaven? No, because Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he is God. I believe a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the only way. I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. That's the only way I'm gonna be right with God. That's the only way God is going to be pleased with me is if I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. Not because, like Paul said in Philippians 3, not having attained a righteous standing of my own, but because I've received the righteousness of Christ imputed to me because of my faith in Jesus. No, you cannot be good enough to go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. But the great news is that Jesus was good enough. Jesus was good enough. As he said with his baptism, let us do so now to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. Third, when Jesus was baptized, Jesus verified the prophets. And this whole scene that unfolds, his baptism, what God says about him, the spirit descending on him, it fulfills and verifies all of the prophets. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Psalm chapter two, we, we covered this a couple of weeks ago. 
This is a messianic psalm, which means it's talking, it's a prophecy. It's talking about the Messiah that is to come. And, and so David pins the words to this psalm, but it's a, it's a prophecy of the Messiah. And it says this in Psalms 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do they reject their Messiah? Why do they reject God? Why do they reject his king? Why do they reject his word? And then David says this, because God has installed his king, his son on his holy mountain. God has installed his king. And then David says this about the Messiah and what the father will say about his son, who is the king of the world through which all things have been made. David says in this, in this vision, he says, I, I, I saw this that the Lord said to my Lord. So, so God says to the Messiah, and David says this in Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have become your father. Does that sound familiar? Do you see that in what we just read? In Luke chapter 3? David wrote that in Psalm chapter 2. The that God is going to say, the Lord said to my Lord, God the Father is going to say to God the Son, the Messiah, his Son, his King, that he is installed. Today, you are my Son. Today, I have become your Father. You see, when a King in David's day would install his Son as the new King, he would take off his crown, he would place it on his son, and he would say, this is my Son. Today, I have begotten thee, which means this, today, your rule begins. You are of the same substance and value and worth and have the same authority that I do. And so I'm taking off my crown, off my head, I'm putting it on your head and this public coronation would happen. Now, the, the, the son of the king was, was always next in line. He was always royalty. It was just a matter of time for the public coronation to take place when the transfer of power would happen from one king to his son, to the next king. And so David, with that idea in mind, sees this happening between the father and the son. That there's going to be a day when the father is going to publicly coronate. What was always true about Jesus, he was always true, he was always the king, but for our sakes, for their sakes, for, for the people of Jesus' day, for his disciples, for their sake, there's a public coronation that happens here where the father says to the son, this is my son, with him I'm well pleased. The other gospels say, listen to him, fulfilling the prophets and what they had to say about the Messiah. Here's another example, in Isaiah chapter 42, God through Isaiah prophesies about a day when the Messiah will come. And here's what Isaiah says, when God will say to his Messiah, Behold my servant, whom I am well pleased. I will put my spirit in him. Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah chapter 42, that one day there would be a day when God would say about his son, his, king, his Messiah, my servant, behold my servant, behold, everyone look at him. With him, I am well pleased. I will put my spirit inside of him. When Jesus was baptized and the spirit descended on him, 
And the father said this about him. Jesus verified what the prophets had said. God fulfilled his own word, prophesied 700 to 1,000 years in advance. Next, after Jesus is baptized, Jesus is verified as God. So Jesus identifies with us. He, he verifies the law. He verifies the prophets, but he also is verified as God himself. His divine nature is confirmed as God publicly speaks for the first time in hundreds of years. The father reveals himself. He opens heaven and he reveals himself. He proves himself. He identifies himself. And then he says, look at him. That's my son. He is of the same substance and value as me. Listen to him, follow him. Jesus would later say to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Who, who do they say that I am? And listen, that's a question all of us need to answer. We all have to ask ourselves, who is Jesus? It's one of the most important questions in this life you could possibly ask yourself. And Jesus asks his disciples, who, who do the people say that I am? Great news, we don't have to wonder, we don't have to guess. Because the father has spoken and said, He's my son. I am his father. He and I are one. Listen to him. Follow him. The father has spoken and declared that Jesus is his son with whom he is well pleased. And then to verify this verbal, audible voice. It says the Holy Spirit in verse 22 descended on him. Not that he didn't always have the spirit, but in this moment, again, for our sakes, for, for their sakes, there's a public coronation that's happening here where the spirit, not a, not a crown, but where the spirit descends and anoints upon Jesus. This is his public anointing, his public coronation as God's Son, And it says that the spirit descended on like a dove. Now it's not saying it was actually a dove. It's just saying there was some sort of physical form or manifestation that came down out of heaven that rested on Jesus that looked like a dove. It took the form of something like a dove. Now, when else in the scripture do you remember a dove making an appearance? Maybe in the story of Noah? Remember the story of Noah? God floods the earth. He pours out his judgment and wrath upon the earth because uh, it, it says in Genesis chapter six that the stench of the wickedness on earth had grown too much for the Lord to bear. He cannot look on evil with favor. And God decides to wipe out every living thing on earth except for righteous Noah and his family. And so Noah and his family and all the animals get on the ark and 40 days, 40 nights, there's water and water and more water. But then Noah begins to see there's, the rain has stopped, the waters are receding. And so he sends out a, a dove. You remember what that dove came back with? It was an olive branch. What does an olive branch symbolize? Peace. The wrath of God for sin had been appeased. It had been met. The dove brings back an, an olive branch showing there can be peace now 
Noah was the last of the old creation. And in Noah, there's now a new creation, just like Adam. It's like a new Adam. He, he's the, the first of a new creation. He, he was the last of the, an old creation and he's the beginning of a new creation. He's the last, he's the end of the old world and the beginning of a, of a new world. Brought about by the symbol of a dove bringing an olive branch. That this season is over and there's going to be a new season. Well, as this dove-like presence descends on Jesus, Scripture says it's the Holy Spirit, we see that Jesus is also, in the same way that Noah was, the beginning of a new creation, a new world. He's going to fulfill every last requirement of the old covenant, of the law. And in doing so, he's going to be the firstborn, the scripture says, he's going to be the firstborn among many new brothers and sisters that are going to be marked by the Holy Spirit. This, this inner, we talked about this last week, this inner presence and fire and desire and passion, they're no longer going to have to be externally pushed and pressed. There's going to be an inner working of the Holy Spirit that's going to change your heart, change your life, give you new desires, give you a hatred for sin, a love for holiness, a love for the spiritual things of heaven. That's what the Holy Spirit's gonna do in you. And so Jesus fulfills all the righteous requirements of the law of the old covenant. And then he's their firstborn among many brothers and sisters in a new covenant where the Holy Spirit will indwell us and change us from the inside out. We'll give you a new heart where the prophets said in the new covenant that's to come, he'll write his laws on our hearts. There'll no longer be this external pressure. It will be this internal motivation. He will write his laws. He'll write his word on our hearts. Our hearts will burn for his word and for his people through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus fulfills all the righteous requirements of the law. He fulfills the old covenant. He's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters in a new covenant and a new creation. The old's gonna be gone and the new is going to come. Now, before we move on from this passage, I gotta give you a little bit, gotta give you a little bit of doctrine, okay? You gotta understand what's happening here and the importance of these verses before we move on. This passage is one of the most significant Trinitarian New Testament passages. It's one of the most significant Trinitarian passages in all of the scripture. The Trinity is not necessarily found in the scripture, not the word itself, it's the idea. It's a word that refers to a doctrine that we believe about God, that God is one, but he exists in three persons. So we believe in one God, who has eternally existed in three different persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see this even in Genesis chapter one, when God says about man, let us make man in our image. In the very beginning, God's referring to himself in this plural sense. We also call it the Godhead. One God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the reason this passage is so important to the doctrine of the Trinity is because in this moment, the Father speaks, the Holy Spirit descends, and Jesus is baptized. They all appear simultaneously, okay? 
that they're all present here at once, but different and unique and distinguished from each other. So this passage refutes the heresy known as modalism. In the early church, it was called Sabellianism after Sibelius, one of its most prominent advocate in the early church. Modalism denies the biblical teaching that God exists eternally in three persons. It views him as one person, the father, who manifests himself at various times as the Holy Spirit and on other occasions as the son. But this view is untenable. In light of this passage and others where the members of the Trinity are clearly distinguished from each other and all present at the same time. So in this moment, God the Father shows up, the Holy Spirit descends and affirms that Jesus is who he said he was. He is one with the Father. The Father and he are one. He is God. Jesus gets God's divine endorsement. And so he has an authority and a position unlike any other rabbi before him or beside him or who would come after him. He is God's son. He not only reads the scripture, memorizes the scripture and interprets the scripture, he gives us scripture as God himself. And then last, in Jesus' baptism, Jesus prophesied his purpose. In Jesus' baptism, he prophesies his purpose. In baptism, you're representing a death, a burial, and then when you come up out of the water, a new life in Christ, a resurrection. That's what baptism symbolizes, death, burial, and resurrection. And in Jesus' baptism, here's what he's doing. He's prophesying that he's going to die, he's going to be buried, that's what it means to go under the water, but then three days later, he's going to rise from the grave. In fact, he would tell his disciples over and over and over again, guys, I'm going to die. But three days later, I'm going to rise from the grave. He said it over and over and over again. And his disciples, they, they never really get it. They never understand. In fact, one time Peter says, may it never be, Lord. I'm not, we're not letting that happen to you. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in mind. You've got the things of men in mind. No, make no mistake. That's why I've come. It's to die. It's to be buried. And then to be raised three days later. And so in Jesus' baptism, he goes under that water. He comes up out of the water. He was prophesying his purpose for which he came. To die in our place for our sin but to be raised to life. He's gonna taste death for all of us so that Hebrews 2 says this, so that he might destroy him who holds the power of death itself. He's gonna die in order to destroy death by his resurrection. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection of the life. If you believe in me, even though you die, you will live. And so when you get baptized, you're doing everything we just talked about here today. You're, you're identifying with Jesus. In Jesus' baptism, he identifies with us. In your baptism, you're identifying with Jesus. In Jesus' baptism, he, he's verifying the law and the prophets. In your bapti baptism, you're saying, 
I'm going public with this new relationship with Jesus. I'm verifying it. I'm publicizing it. It's like a coronation. We're going public. In your baptism, you're saying, Jesus is God. In your baptism, you're, you're prophesying. You're saying, I'm dead to myself. I'm dead to my sin. But I've got new life in Christ. And, and even though I die one day, and the scripture says we all will, unless you're alive when Jesus returns, it's appointed unto man once to die. I'm going to die one day. The curse of sin is gonna have its moment. It's gonna have its season on my body. But make no mistake, when you come up out of that water, you are representing that one day, even though you die, and even though the curse of sin will have its moment on your body, that one day Jesus is going to raise that body from the grave. You're prophesying that one day, even though you die, you're gonna live. And that body is going to be raised up right out of the grave, just like Jesus's was. You're identifying with Jesus. You're verifying to your faith community who you are now. And you're prophesying that one day, even though you die, you're gonna live. You're, you're prophesying what your life is gonna look like for the rest of your time here on this earth. When, when you go under that water, it's representing a death to sin, but it's also representing that when you come up out of that water, you've got a new life in Christ and you're going to deny yourself. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, they gotta deny themselves. Die to yourself, not, not celebrate yourself, not have pride in yourself, not go find yourself, not, not, not be yourself. Jesus said, if you wanna follow me, you will deny yourself. And so in baptism, you're saying, I'm going to deny myself and I'm following Jesus because that's where life is found. That's what happens when you get baptized. That's what you're saying, that's what you're doing. And we're gonna see some people get baptized here in just a second, it's gonna be amazing. But here's what's wild. At this point in Luke, we've now seen the, the angels saying, this is him, right? We've seen John the Baptist, the last prophet saying, look, look, there he goes, that's him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's the Messiah, don't look at me, look to him. We've had the Holy Spirit coming down out of heaven and resting upon Jesus. We've had the Father now saying, that's my son. Listen to him, follow him. We, we've had already, and just in our study of Luke, when we're only in Luke chapter three, we've got a lot more to go. We haven't even gotten to the resurrection yet, right? And just already, we've got so much confirmation and, and so many people saying, that's him, there he goes. He's the King, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God. This confirmation should have been enough to compel Belief in Jesus is the Messiah. Belief in Jesus is God. But even after all of this, and even after the resurrection, Jesus is ascending back to heaven. I mean, literally floating up off of this earth and going back into heaven through some sort of new Dr. Strange kind of like portal, right? I mean, he's ascending back to, back to heaven. And it says many of his followers worshiped him. They worshiped him because they knew, they believed, they, they had seen enough. And so they believed and they went to their graves as martyrs, dying horrible deaths saying, we believe 
that Jesus is the Son of God. But here's what's wild in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is resurrected from the grave. He's ascending back to heaven. And it says, but some of them doubted. They're literally watching Jesus float away into heaven. They're like, I don't know, you know, that's pretty cool, but I don't know. I'm just not sure. I've still got my questions. I've still got my doubts. Some of them had seen enough, but still others doubted. It just shows you that there will never be enough signs. There will never be enough signs to convince the hardest heart. There will never be enough. In this moment, some doubted, others worshiped. When the message was getting difficult and many of the crowd were beginning to disperse and Jesus looked at his disciples and said, are you gonna leave me too? And Peter said this, Jesus, we have nowhere else to go. You're the son of God. You have the words of life. We have nowhere else to go. You are who you say you are. There's, there is nowhere else to go, Jesus. It doesn't matter how hard this journey is gonna be. It doesn't matter what it's gonna mean for me. It doesn't matter how much hurt and pain and suffering I'm gonna have to go through. You, you, I've seen enough. You are who you say you are. You have the words of life. You're the son of God. I'm following you. Peter would later say when he was on trial for preaching about Jesus, there's salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Peter had seen enough. He didn't need any more signs. He didn't need any more proof. He had seen enough. He was convinced. Listen, at some point, you've got to get to the place where you've seen enough, where you don't need another sign. You don't need any more proof. Some of us aren't there yet, and that's okay. Keep searching, keep asking questions. The Bible says, if you search for God, you'll find him. So if you're honestly searching, keep searching. But others of us, we've made the decision to give our lives to Jesus. And I would challenge you with this. Have you seen enough? Like, have you seen enough where you begin to submit all your emotions and pain and circumstances and suffering to the truth that Jesus is who he said he is? You see, so oftentimes we, we hit pain and suffering or questions or, or doubt, or God doesn't do something we want him to do and we, when we want him to do it. And, and it rocks our faith. And we begin to say, well, you know, I'm just not too sure that, that he is who he says he is. No, at some point, you've got to get to a, like, like Peter did, where you say, I've seen enough. I don't need any more signs. You are who you say you are. You are who the Father said you are. You're God, and I'm trusting in you. You have the words of life. I have nowhere else to go. Regardless of how hard it gets, how painful it gets, whoever may hurt me, I've seen enough. It doesn't mean you're not gonna struggle. It doesn't mean you're not gonna ask questions. God, where are you? What are you doing? But I've seen enough. You are who you say. You are who the Father said that you are. And I've got nowhere else to go. 
This whole passage is a prophecy. It's a prophecy because in Revelation chapter 19, it says that there's gonna be another day where God is going to tear back the sky, where heaven is going to open and where the son of Jesus, son of God, Jesus is going to descend, not on a white dove, but on a white horse. And when he returns on that day, when heaven cracks open once again, and Jesus descends, it's going to be to judge, to rule, and to reign. Are you ready for that day? If not, give your life to Jesus today. Jump on our app, fill out our connect form. Let us know that you're giving your life to Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word here. God, that just points to who Jesus is, that, that he is your son whom you love, you were well pleased with him, and you told us to listen to him, to follow him. And, and so like Peter, God, I pray in this moment through the power of the Holy Spirit, that like Peter, we could say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You have the words of life. We have nowhere else to go. We've seen enough. And so God, we thank you for the testimony of scripture, of the prophets, of, uh, of John the Baptist, of the disciples, uh, of the Holy Spirit. The testimony of God is that Jesus is God and that he's the only way to heaven. There is no other name. And so God, would you reveal yourself? Would you crack open heaven in this moment for each one of us in our hearts and reveal yourself to us? and confirm in our hearts and birth a faith in our hearts that says, Jesus is God's son. I'm giving my life to him. It's in your name we pray.